On March 14, 1960, the bodies of three women from the Chicago suburbs were discovered in St. Louis Canyon, one of the many natural wonders at Starved Rock State Park near Utica, Illinois. The crime shocked the entire state and led to a manhunt that snared a confessed killer who spent the next 59 years in prison. It's one of the most shocking stories to ever occur in this otherwise peaceful region. But no one can say that Starved Rock does not have a violent and bloody past. The park takes its name from a rock fortress on the Illinois River where a band of Illinois Indians were trapped by their enemies in the 17th century. As their numbers decreased from starvation, desperate warriors attempted to escape, only to be slaughtered in the surrounding forests, or so the story goes. Centuries later, the violence of the past returned with the discovery of the bludgeoned bodies of those three women and the capture and conviction of their killer. The case was tragic, but it was over. Or was it? Not only did the Starved Rock murders leave a haunting behind at St. Louis Canyon, but the man who confessed to their murders changed his mind behind bars and spent the next six decades trying to get out. Was he guilty of the murders or was he, as he has claimed for so long, railroaded into admitting to a crime he didn't commit? A simple case of murder just might have been an unsolved murder all along. And if that's the case, is it any wonder that the spirits of the dead refuse to rest? Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the last act of this season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This has been a strange and twisted season so far, filled with witchcraft, hexes, curses, mysterious disappearances, and the many spirits and sins of America's past. But this last act has definitely become the bloodiest and most twisted as we delve into some of the murders that have occurred in our country's forests, farms, and fields. And this is episode 20, a story that I almost didn't include, even though it fits with all the other stories in this final act. It has a brutal murder in the woods, a desperate villain, and even lingering ghosts. But even so, I can honestly say that I've received more hate mail about this story than anything else I've written about over the years. I've always written about this case by presenting the facts as they were discovered in 1960. The clues, the evidence, the confession. And I know there are many theories about the innocence of the convicted killer, but he did confess. And he was found guilty in a court of law. And while I've yet to see any convincing evidence presented that say the cops got the wrong man, I do know that sometimes the wrong people end up behind bars. Our legal system is far from perfect, and maybe, maybe it failed in the case of the Starved Rock murders. We may have to wait to find that out, but I'll offer what we do know, and you can judge the case for yourself. The three ladies couldn't wait to hit the trails of Starved Rock Park. Even with the cold weather, they needed the escape. Mildred Lindquist, Lillian Edding, and Frances Murphy had driven from the upscale Chicago suburb of Riverside for a four-day holiday at the state park. The three friends, who all attended the Riverside Presbyterian Church, had been anxious for this outing together. 
Lillian, who had spent the entire winter nursing her husband after a heart attack, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird watching, and spending time outdoors. They were drawn to the park, like two million other tourists are each year, by its glacier-carved sandstone bluffs and canyons, dramatic waterfalls, and miles of wooded trails. Employees at the park's lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Frances had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded a few pieces of luggage. They registered for two rooms, dropped off their bags, and then ate lunch in the spacious dining room with its immense stone fireplace and stunning view of the Illinois River Valley. Afterward, they'd remarked to a staff member that it was a beautiful day for a hike, and they left, carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. The women walked away from the lodge wearing rubber galoshes. The path was covered with the light snow, and they trudged and slipped along, pausing occasionally to take photographs of one another. Eventually, they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon, where steep, rocky walls framed a majestic, frozen waterfall. The three women were only one mile from the lodge. Lillian struggled with the controls of her friend's camera and snapped several color slides of the canyon. When she was finished, the group turned to leave, and then something happened that still remains a mystery after all these years. The first sign that something was wrong occurred that evening when George Edding tried to telephone his wife at the lodge. The telephone rang in room 109 over and over again, but no one answered. Lillian had promised to call George that afternoon, but when she didn't, George called her instead. The desk clerk who placed the call told George that his wife seemed to be out, but he could leave a message for her to call home and she would see that she got it when she returned. Clerk also suggested that George could try again in the morning. He agreed and, unconcerned, went to bed. On Tuesday morning, he called the lodge again and once more asked to speak to his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly told the worried man that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at that time. Well, reassured, George ended the call. Well, that night, a late winter storm hit the Illinois Valley. In St. Louis Canyon, several inches of snow covered up footprints, bloodstains, and other vital pieces of information around three cold and still bodies. The near blizzard conditions continued all night long, making the roads in the park nearly impassable. By Tuesday evening, George still hadn't heard from Lillian. He made several attempts, but still no one picked up the ringing phone in room 109. George left another message. Call home immediately. Early on the afternoon of March 16th, George called the lodge again, but his wife and her friends still couldn't be located. At his insistence, employees entered the women's rooms and found that the bags and beds had been untouched. A quick check of the parking lot also showed that the Murphy station wagon had not been moved. Shocked, George realized that his wife and her friends had now been missing for more than 40 hours. That's when he called Robert Murphy, Francis's husband and a vice president and general counsel for the Borg Warner Corporation, and Mildred's husband, Robert Lindquist, vice president of Harris Trust and Savings Bank. Neither of those men had heard from their wives since they'd left for Starved Rock. 
After ending those calls, George telephoned his longtime friend, Virgil W. Peterson, the operating director of Chicago Crime Commission, an organization of business leaders who worked to snuff out organized crime in the city. A former FBI agent who had many connections in law enforcement, Peterson began making calls to help in the search for the missing women, including to LaSalle County Sheriff Ray Utzi and the Illinois State Police. Peterson left his office to accompany one of the groups that left immediately for Starved Rock. Later on Wednesday morning, parties of state and local police and volunteers began searching the park. The recent snows made the search even more challenging than it would have been in the always rugged terrain. But even despite the weather, it only took about 90 minutes for a group of boys from a forestry camp for young offenders to find the bloodied, battered bodies of Lillian, Mildred, and Francis in St. Louis Canyon. The three women had been pulled beneath an overhang and were lying side by side, partially covered by snow. They were on their backs. Two of the women were naked from the waist down and their legs were spread open. They'd been tied up with twine and bludgeoned beyond recognition. They were covered with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. When state police detectives arrived, they searched the area. Except for the spot just beneath the overhang, the canyon was covered with several inches of snow. The fine white powder had to be carefully removed and as it was, signs of a violent struggle were revealed. Francis's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. Its leather case was smeared with blood and its strap was broken. They also found the women's bloody binoculars. A short distance away, LaSalle County State's Attorney Harlan Warren stumbled across a frozen tree limb that was streaked with blood. The snow beneath it was covered with blood too and it was realized this was likely the murder weapon. A trail of gore also led them to speculate that the women had been killed deeper in the canyon and their bodies had then been dragged under the rock ledge. The bodies remained in place for hours until pathologists and state crime lab officials could arrive. The vigil lasted long into the night and then, aided by lanterns and flashlights, the victims were removed on cloth stretchers. Word quickly spread of the discovery of the three bodies, locally and then nationally. A cloud of fear and paranoia fell on the Illinois River Valley. With a killer or killers on the loose, people were scared. Doors that were never locked before were now firmly secured. Hardware stores experienced a run on new deadbolts and sporting goods stores saw guns vanish from their cases at an alarming rate. The number of overnight guests at the Starved Rock Lodge dropped off, not surprisingly, to almost nothing. And some motorists went miles out of their way to avoid driving near the canyon entrance. Newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation and elevated the level of panic in the area. And as the gruesome details of the murder spread, stunned residents had to ask themselves, as one local reporter put it, what kind of animal could do such a thing like this? From almost the moment the bodies were found, there was intense pressure on investigators to find the killer or killers. The brutal savagery and apparent randomness of the attack, the idyllic setting of Starved Rock, and the prominent social standing of the victims brought reporters to the area from all over the country. The Associated Press even called the murders the number one story in the world today. 
Life magazine devoted pages in two different issues to the murders, and they were front page news in Chicago and LaSalle County papers for months. Readers anxiously waited for every new development. The problem was there wasn't much. Amid the glare of the media spotlight, no expense was spared, but it didn't matter. The investigation went nowhere, almost from the start. Things were further confused by all of those who wanted to maintain jurisdiction in the case. State's attorney Harlan Warren and Sheriff Ray Utsi were technically in charge, but Governor William Stratton ordered the state police to be part of the case because the murders were committed on state park property. The two law enforcement camps clashed, but Warren was in a bind. He was forced to deal with the state authorities because the officials in the South County simply had no experience dealing with crimes of this type. On Wednesday evening, the three women's bodies were taken to the Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa, Illinois, where pathologists from Bloomington conducted the autopsies. The women had died from massive head trauma, which came as no surprise to anyone who'd seen the corpses. More baffling, though, was that the tip of one of Francis's fingers had been cut off. It was never recovered. From a temporary headquarters set up inside the Starved Rock Lodge, police began the first of several hundred interviews they conducted with employees and guests of the lodge, transients who were living in 17 different motels in the area, known fur poachers, a bakery truck driver seen near the canyon entrance on the day of the crime, a man spotted in the park just before the killings shortly after he'd been arrested for chasing high school girls in Utica and many others. Sheriff Utsi even tracked down a traveling preacher who'd used a motion picture camera in the park on the day the women were killed. The minister turned over the footage, but it revealed no clues. The Chicago companies that employed the victims' husbands, Borg Warner, Harris Savings and Trust, and Illinois Bell, offered a combined reward of $30,000 for information that led to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Nicholas Spiro, the lodge's longtime operator, chipped in $5,000 more, bringing the total to what would be $300,000 in today's dollars. Tips flooded in by mail and telephone. The only one that seemed solid came from a LaSalle auto dealer who recalled that on March 14th, around 2 p.m., he was driving down Route 178, the road with an entrance to St. Louis Canyon, and saw a tan and beige Chevy Bel Air backed up to where three women stood. A young man got out of the car and spoke to the three women. Another man stayed in the car. The description of the first man was that he was around 25. Five foot eight, 165 pounds, wavy, reddish brown hair, dressed in a yellow and gray coat and blue pants that may have been denim. The investigators did what they could with the sighting, but they didn't get far with it. They also ran with the discovery that Lillian's wedding band and engagement ring were missing by checking with pawn shops all over the area, but that also led nowhere. Many of our leads have led to dead ends, Sheriff Utsi told reporters in 1960, but we're going to solve this case. I don't know where or how long it'll be, but we will. As the investigation plotted on, pressure increased on police officials to make progress. That pressure was being felt sharply at Harlan Warren's office. The state's attorney was doing everything in his power to move the investigation forward, especially in an election year. Money was also becoming a problem since the investigation's budget was soaring and things were about to get worse. 
In late April, with the murder still unsolved, the Illinois Crime Lab came under intense fire for bungling the investigation. For weeks, the understaffed and underfunded lab had not been able to locate Lillian's rings, which had sent detectives scrambling all over the region, questioning the owners of pawn shops. And then the rings turned up when a deputy unpacking evidence found them in her glove. Another piece of evidence, her reading glasses, were discovered in her jacket pocket. The lab also initially missed bloodstains on her clothing and identified hair on Lillian's hand as female. The source of the hair turned out to be, later on, two men, a youth and a middle-aged man. The controversy would lead to the entire lab being reformed, but in the meantime, evidence from the case was sent to the state crime lab in Michigan for analysis, leaving investigators feeling like they were back at square one. Harlan Warren was taking the criticism about the case harder than anyone. After all, he had been the one who decided to send the evidence to the Illinois Crime Lab in the first place, despite the state police preference for the FBI labs in Chicago or even St. Louis. The investigation ground to a halt in the summer of 1960. The election was looming and Warren's opponent was making sure that voters were aware that the most infamous crime in the county's history was still unsolved and a killer was still walking around free. So in late summer, Warren decided to take matters into his own hands. The prosecutor became a detective. Taking stock of the evidence, he asked himself what the killer had left behind at the scene of the crime, and the obvious answer was the twine that he'd used to bind two of the victims. Using his own money, Warren purchased a microscope and began intently conducting a study of the twine. Research revealed there were two kinds of twine used during the murders, a 20-ply cord and a 12-ply cord. With this information in hand, he sought out help to follow the lead. Instead of choosing someone from his staff, he handpicked two county detectives who would report to him alone. The two men were deputies Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess. They were both well-known, hard-working detectives with good reputations who could be trusted not to leak the details of what Warren was doing to the newspapers. Their investigation started in the most logical spot, the Starved Rock Lodge. In September 1960, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. Within minutes and without much difficulty, Warren found both kinds of twine used in the murder. They were each used for wrapping food, and Dummett and Hess, using lodge purchasing records, soon tracked down the twine's manufacturer. The twine used to bind the murder victims had been taken, without question, from the supply in the lodge's kitchen. Just as Warren had always suspected, the killer either worked at or had access to the Starbrock Lodge. Warren couldn't ignore the fact that all of the lodge employees had been questioned and given polygraph tests. Those tests couldn't be used in court because they weren't technically reliable, but they did guide in an investigation. No less than two dozen staff members had been tested. All had passed, but now Warren had to think that at least one of those tested had actually been guilty. So Warren boldly decided to run new tests on his own. He arranged for the use of a cabin near the lodge and hired an examiner from John E. Reed and Associates, a prominent Chicago firm, to conduct the new polygraph tests. Warren recalled all the employees and started over. 
One by one, they came to the cabin and submitted to another polygraph exam. The first dozen or so were quickly cleared, and Warren and his two detectives began to wonder if they were wasting their time. But then a former dishwasher at the lodge was brought in for his exam, and everything changed. The man had already been tested six times and had been cleared with all the other employees during the earlier exams. This time, though, was different. When his polygraph test was completed, Warren saw that the examiner's face had turned pale. As soon as the man left the cabin, the examiner looked at Warren and the two deputies and quietly stated, That's your man. Chester Weger was only 21 at the time of the murders and was a familiar and friendly presence to the busy lawmen at Starved Rock in the days that followed. After the investigators moved their headquarters out to one of the cabins on the property, they would sometimes ask for coffee or food, and often it would be Chester who delivered it from the kitchen. Even so, like all the other employees at Starved Rock, he'd been interviewed several times by the authorities and had gone along with the polygraph tests when they'd been requested. After each of Chester's six lie detector tests, the examiner concluded that he was not withholding any relevant knowledge and that he didn't commit the murders. Chester was born in Derby, Iowa in 1939, the only boy among six children in his family. When he was two, the family moved to Illinois and settled in Oglesby in a two-bedroom house without indoor plumbing. Chester slept in the living room on a pull-out sofa. His father worked as a painter in the summer and raised coonhounds the rest of the time. His mother worked as a housekeeper at Starved Rock Lodge. They were so poor, they literally lived off the land, eating the meat they hunted and the vegetables they grew. Chester loved to wander through Starved Rock and had an extensive knowledge of all the trails. In 1952, when he was 12 or 13, Chester was arrested on statutory rape charges. The details were later redacted because of the age of those involved. According to Chester, though, it was a misunderstanding, and he'd been told to plead guilty. Well, he did and got probation. It's the first crime that Chester was charged with that he later claimed he was not guilty of committing. But it wouldn't be the last. It was this crime that had first got the attention of investigators in 1960. It put Chester on their radar, and he didn't help matters by being a little too helpful. One day, he told state troopers that he knew of a shortcut out of St. Louis Canyon, up behind the falls. He offered to show them in, you know, if it might help. One trooper later testified that while they explored the area around the waterfall, Chester stopped and pointed to the crime scene and asked, Hey, is that where those women were lying? Less than a week later, officers stopped Chester at the lodge to ask him if they'd accompany him to his apartment in LaSalle, where he lived with his wife and two children, to get photos of him wearing a buckskin jacket with fringe that he owned. Chester agreed, and after snapping pictures, the officers clipped off a couple of tassels from the coat, which were sent off to the crime lab. Well, after the fiasco at the lab and the polygraph tests that he passed, though, Chester seemed to have fallen off the suspect list until Warren's new exam in September. By then, Chester was no longer working at the lodge. He'd left during the summer after the murders to help his father with the house painting business. He'd returned for the new test and, well, now he had the full attention of the LaSalle County authorities. 
Early on the morning of September 27th, Bill Dummett and Assistant State's Attorney Craig Armstrong picked up Chester outside his father's home and took him to the Reed headquarters in Chicago. John Reed himself sat down with Chester and spent the next three hours discussing the Starved Rock case with him and administering a new polygraph test. When Reed concluded that Chester was lying, he spent more time trying to convince him to tell the truth. Chester continued to deny having anything to do with the killings. Chester finally left Reed's office around midnight, but the interrogation wasn't over yet. In the front seat of Dummett's car, sandwiched between the detective and the state's attorney, Dummett told Chester that if he didn't sign a confession, he'd go to the electric chair. Well, Chester again insisted he hadn't killed anyone. Around 2 a.m., the three men arrived back at the LaSalle County Courthouse. In his fourth floor office, Armstrong put Chester through several more hours of questions. Chester continued to proclaim his innocence. He was photographed and put into a police lineup, but he refused to confess. Finally, around daybreak, investigators told Chester they wanted his buckskin jacket so it could be sent off to the FBI crime lab. Chester agreed, and Armstrong and Detective Wayne Hess drove him home. When Chester handed over the jacket, Hess asked if they could look around, and Chester agreed to that too. They opened drawers and cupboards looking for twine. They found several pieces, but none of it matched the twine from the crime scene. Finally, Armstrong and Hess drove Chester to his father's house in Oglesby, where he'd been staying. On the way, he started to nod off. He'd been kept awake for more than 24 hours for on and off interrogations. During that time, though, he'd maintained he had not killed the three women in St. Louis Canyon. Chester was released, but he wasn't free. The state police kept him under 24-hour surveillance. They maintained it was for public safety, although Chester later claimed it was just to intimidate him. Whatever the reason, troopers openly followed him day and night, to painting jobs, to taverns, to the bowling alley, everywhere. He was innocent. That was his story. And he was sticking to it. And that was his story. And it's a story that the pro bono attorneys working for him today also maintain. But um, there is a bit that's been left out. After Chester became the lead suspect in the murders, Warren, Dummett, and Hess started looking into his background. And they also started looking for any similar crimes in the region which is how they came across the rape and robbery that took place a half mile from Starved Rock in 1959. When the young woman who was attacked sorted through a stack of mug shots, she began to scream when she saw the face of Chester Weger. He was, she was adamant, the man who had raped her. It would be for this crime that an arrest warrant was issued for Chester, not for the Starved Rock murders, as most would claim. Warren hoped that Chester could be convinced to confess to the rape and robbery as well as for the murders at Starved Rock once they had him in custody. On November 16th, around 6 p.m., Dummett and Hess picked him up at his apartment. At the courthouse, the deputy sat Chester down and confronted him about the rape and the murders. They pressed him for hours. Chester later stated that Detective Dummett gave him two options, confess and get a life sentence and have a chance of getting out of jail or don't confess and end up in the electric chair. Well, this kind of threat didn't make Chester's case special. It's an interrogation tactic that's probably been used hundreds of thousands of times by police departments throughout history. 
The detectives kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight, and then finally, weary of questions and nearly exhausted, Chester stopped in mid-sentence and asked to see his family. A police car was dispatched to his parents' home in Oglesby, and his mother and father were brought to the courthouse. His wife arrived soon after. Dummett and Hess gave them a few minutes alone with Chester. As they entered the interrogation room, Chester's father, Herschel, later testified that Sheriff Ray Utsi told him that if his son didn't confess, he'd go to the little green room, a reference to the prison execution room. He also claimed that from outside the room, he heard Detective Dummett telling his son, you know you did it. Why don't you come clean and say you done it? Why do you want to treat your wife and children like that? Why do you want to treat your father and mother like that? Come clean and tell us about it. Again, this was standard stuff. If you get picked up by the cops for murder, you're going to hear the same thing they were saying to suspects in 1960. So how about this? Keep your mouth shut and ask for a lawyer. It's not that hard. Anyway, back to the story. Herschel later said that he asked his son if he'd committed the murders, and Chester said, no, daddy, I did not. He'd also claimed that he asked the sheriff for time to get his son a lawyer, but the sheriff ignored him. There is, of course, no record of this, and no attempt was made to get a lawyer at that time, so make of that what you will. Before Chester's family left, his wife kissed him, his mother hugged him, and told him to tell the truth. Well, not more than a few minutes passed before Chester looked at the two detectives and said, All right, if you want a confession, I'll give you one. Chester then proceeded to offer a version of events that had him trying to rob the three women and things getting out of control. He gave the same confession four different times to different police officials over the next 15 hours. He'd been walking in the canyon during his afternoon break, he said, and tried to snatch the purse of one of the women. It turned out to be the strap of a camera case instead, which broke. One of the women struck him and a scuffle ensued. Finally, he was able to calm things down and force the women to walk into the canyon where he said he'd let them go if they gave up their money and valuables. The women agreed to be tied up using the twine he had in his pocket from the lodge kitchen. But then one of the women attacked him again and he, he just defended himself with a tree branch, knocking her unconscious. Fearing she was dead, he bludgeoned the other women to death to eliminate any witnesses. When the first woman he struck woke up, he killed her too. He hadn't raped them, and this fit with the coroner's report, but he wanted it to look like someone had. He washed up in the creek and returned to the lodge for his evening shift. When asked why he'd moved the bodies under the overhang in St. Louis Canyon, Chester said that he'd spotted a small airplane flying low over the park and he didn't want them to be seen from above. Like the rape evidence that Chester didn't know existed, this also checked out. The flight over the park was confirmed by the pilot's testimony and the logbook. Chester gave the confession several more times and even reenacted the killings for a crowd of policemen and reporters in St. Louis Canyon. The cops finally had their man. The Starved Rock murders were solved, or so it seemed at the time. Two days later, though, after his first meeting with his court-appointed attorney, Joseph Carr, Chester changed his story and recounted his confession. I don't know anything about those murders, he now claimed. Chester claimed that Dummett and Hess had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun. He'd lied in his confession, but had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway. Chester also said that deputies had showed him pictures of the crime scene and fed him information about the airplane, even though no one knew about the airplane at that time or had spoken to the pilot until Chester told them about it. 
And that's probably why the judge at his pretrial hearing the following month denied the motion to suppress his confession. It was staying in and would be the state's most powerful weapon against him. The trial began in February 1961 in downtown Ottawa, but it would not be Harlan Warren who was trying the case. He'd been so busy investigating the murders that he'd had little time for his re-election campaign. Confident of his record of cleaning up gambling and prostitution from LaSalle County during his eight years in office, Warren let his past actions speak for themselves. Unfortunately, his opponent let the bungling of the Starved Rock murder case speak for him. Out of 60,000 votes cast in the election, Warren lost by nearly 3,500. When Chester was brought to trial, the new state's attorney, Robert Richardson, was in charge of the prosecution. He was assisted by Anthony Racula, who was fresh out of law school. The case was drawing national attention, and Judge Leonard Hoffman, looking at two prosecutors who'd never tried a murder case before, suggested that Harlan Warren be named as a special prosecutor for this case only. Well, Richardson, who had strongly criticized Warren during the election, shot down the idea. He did have a solid plan, though. They would try Chester for only one of the murders, Lillian Eddy. That way, in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against him for the other killings. They sought the death penalty in the case. Defending Chester was John McNamara, a former county state's attorney that Herschel Weger paid for using the proceeds from the sale of two coonhounds. Like an episode of Matlock or something. Anyway, McNamara used his time in closing arguments attacking Detective Bill Dummett, who he claimed had forced Chester to confess. But the jury didn't buy it. On March 3rd, almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Chester Weger after deliberating for only two hours. It was Chester's 22nd birthday, and as a gift, he was given a sentence of life behind bars. After Judge Hoffman dismissed the jurors, reporters asked them if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant that Chester would be eligible for parole in a few years. Most of the jurors were shocked. They'd had no idea. Some of them even said that if they'd known that Chester wasn't really being sent away for the rest of his life, they'd have voted for the electric chair. While a lack of knowledge of Illinois law and a prosecutor's failure to properly instruct the jury ended up saving Chester's life. Chester was locked up at Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet and later was moved to the Illinois River Correctional Center in Canton. His wife filed for divorce after six years. By the mid-1970s, his chances for appeal all dried up. He'd been before the Illinois Supreme Court twice, and his request for a hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court was denied in 1977. There was nothing wrong with the trial. Chester had confessed, and he was behind bars where most people believed he belonged. Most people, but not everyone. For some, the case had a lot of unanswered questions. Many feel the evidence that was used to convict Chester wouldn't stand up in court today. His prosecution largely turned out to be his confession, which predated Miranda warnings that are now required. Other question how Chester, a small man with a slight build, could have overpowered the three middle-aged women and then moved their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under the rock overhang. They suggested he had an accomplice, a possibility that I've considered myself. Others who believe in his innocence, though, point to a deathbed confession that allegedly occurred in 1982 or 1983. 
A Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in 2004 that said he witnessed the confession. It was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Starved Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner, now deceased, were called to rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to, quote, clear her conscience. The affidavit stated, The woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she'd been with their friends at a state park when something happened. The woman then told Gibson that she was at the park in Utica and things got out of hand. Multiple victims were killed and, quote, they dragged the bodies. Gibson said that the woman's daughters cut the interview short, shouting that their mother was out of her mind and ordering the police from the room. In the affidavit, Gibson did not provide the exact date of the interview or the woman's name, but said he passed the information along to a detective. The affidavit did not address whether there was any follow-up or why the confession was not presented until 2004. Well, the alleged confession was not allowed into the court hearings and the DNA tests turned out to be a disaster. All the evidence had been placed in a single filing cabinet 40 years before and were contaminated. Lawyers working for Chester dropped the motion for DNA testing and tried to get Governor Rod Blagojevich to pardon Chester instead claiming that Detective Dummett was guilty of misconduct. Well, the pardon was denied in June 2007. The petition for the pardon was filled with information never presented before. Like when Chester stated that he was not at the park on the day of the murders because he was getting a haircut. This had never been mentioned before, and neither had his claims of Sheriff Utsi, who was of course now long dead, hitting him in the stomach and groin with a billy club, a flashlight, and shackles. Governor Blagojevich, who'd soon spent times behind bars himself for trying to sell the Senate seat left open by President Obama, wasn't buying it. Well, these conspiracies gave birth to more conspiracies. People began asking questions about the juvenile offenders who found the bodies. Others suggested there was a LaSalle County man who was known to stash stolen guns in Starved Rock before they were fenced in Chicago. Had the women stumbled across something on their hike they weren't supposed to see? That was the question. Still others believed the killer was someone the women knew, stating that the murders appeared to be a revenge crime, implying that one of their husbands was involved in something scandalous. Or maybe it was gangsters since they were so well acquainted with Virgil Peterson from the Chicago Crime Commission. Another later named suspect was George Spiros, the son of the operator of the Starved Rock Lodge at the time of the murders. Spiros lived with his father in a cabin on park ground, not far from where the bodies were found. His alibi didn't quite check out, but he passed a polygraph test. Well, right after being named as a suspect in May 2005, though, he was found dead in his home from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Spooky. Yeah, more conspiracies. Finally, in November 2019, Chester was granted parole and was released from prison to a halfway house for elderly former convicts. If he was guilty, then he served his time. And some would say that he's worthy of release and deserves a second chance with what little of his life remains. It's just too bad that Mildred, Lillian, and Francis, that they don't get a second chance too. Even though he's out from behind bars, the quest to prove him innocent goes on.
In 2021, his pro bono attorneys were granted permission for the evidence in the file cabinet to be tested again, using technology not available in 2004. A year later, a forensics lab stated that the hair that was found on Francis Murphy's hand could be traced to two men, neither of whom was Chester Weger. His attorneys loudly crowed that Chester had finally been exonerated, but come on, was he really? The evidence from the case had been badly corrupted, mixed together, mishandled, and exposed to scores of people who were not in the DNA system. Just because the hair didn't match Chester, it could have matched any one of hundreds of law enforcement officials who'd been near the evidence in the last six decades. It certainly didn't have to come from the killer. Legally speaking, this would have cast doubt on his guilt in 1961, but too much time has passed to say that a single hair can exonerate a man who confessed no less than a dozen times, who reenacted the murders, and who knew about a plane that flew over the crime scene before the police did. Sorry, it's going to take more than that to convince me, but then again, I'm, I'm no detective. You'll have to judge this case for yourself, just as you probably should the stories of the ghosts that are associated with it. Over the years, rumors have swirled about the hauntings that linger from the murders. Stardrock Lodge has been the source of many ghost stories over the years, but only one place in the lodge can be linked to the deaths of the three women who were murdered in March of 1960. That's room 109, the room where they were supposed to have stayed during their late winter getaway. I doubt that you'll be surprised to learn that the telephone in that room had a habit of ringing over and over again by itself. When the guests in the room would answer it, they would only hear the hiss of static from an open line, and then it would go dead. After a few times of this, complaints were made to the front desk who insisted that no call had been put through to that room. But it kept happening. The telephone would ring and the guests would pick it up and there would be no one there. Over and over, well, except for that one night. According to one account, a guest was staying in room 109 and was awakened by the shrill ringing of the phone. He reached over and picked up the receiver and pressed it to his ear. Hello, he mumbled. There was no sound at first, only static. And then a man's voice asked loudly, Lillian? And the line went dead. Not far from the lodge, the stories say that the silence of St. Louis Canyon is occasionally broken by the screams and cries of a woman or several women. The cries echo off the sandstone walls deep in the canyon where the bodies of the three women were found. These sounds of the past remain after all these years. No one knows why. If their murders have finally been solved, then why don't the spirits of the dead women rest in peace? I can't answer that for you. Perhaps the voices and cries are nothing more than echoes of the horrible events that took place here, imprinted at a place of terror and death, or perhaps their ghosts do still walk, still seeking justice for the crime that was committed. Perhaps Chester Weger was innocent after all, or perhaps more likely, he didn't act alone, and his accomplice was never found. Who can say? The story of Starved Rock may finally be over, or perhaps there will be more story to tell in the years to come. Until that time, it seems the dead will continue to walk and urge us to remember them for who they were and for what happened to them on that cold winter morning in March.
Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. robot okay thanks for tuning into the american hauntings podcast the show where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history we are now in season six of the podcast woods and fields dark and wicked thank you uh, i'm your co-host <laughs> cody beck with me is my co-host author historian crime buff and deep voice uh, aficionado i don't know founder of american hauntings troy taylor <laughs> troy taylor yes i'm glad you hey, jumped you in doing? this time with that yeah yeah i didn't i was i'm a little more on the ball this time so yeah than i was before <laughs> yes yes i'm glad you're on the ball you've got a ton of stuff going on you've had a lot of things yeah. going on yeah I've, um, I've been uh i've been run ragged but that's yeah, okay i don't mind you know, <laughs> it's october it's man fun. you're used to it yeah it has been fun i uh i did the edwardsville illinois library um last week uh which was a lot of fun we had a huge crowd what'd you what'd you do for that because i because i did something years ago but i don't know what you did this time yeah i did something new and it was called um there's something strange in your neighborhood it was just kind of a local hauntings kind of thing like southwest illinois little alton little edwardsville little hartford castle you know that kind Uh of stuff so yeah it was fun it was a lot of fun a good crowd for that we we also filled up the 
Granite City Library, which wasn't as hard to fill. <laughs> it's a little sure. smaller. Fun. But did you know that there was a speakeasy in Granite City? Uh, I didn't like, know that. I'm not surprised, but I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, it's very cool. I mean, it is like a Chicago, um, you know, quality bar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's right on the main drag there on the main street. And the outside of it, you can't tell other than there's this green light with a blind pig, pig with sunglasses on the thing, you know, because blind pig's a name for a speakeasy. When you open the door, it looks like a giant, like, industrial freezer door and you open it up and you walk inside into a foyer which is a meat freezer it's like it's fake meat but it's in racks and there's shelves and everything is all set up and then you pull one of the handles one of the shelves open then you walk in into the speakeasy which is like a really classy looking joint and there's a guy there that's like a makes his own whiskey they make all their own ingredients and it's in granite city dude that's awesome (laughs) I even we were we I was sitting there and there and I said, I, I, I it's hard to believe this is in Granite City and it, you know not meaning it as an insult but they understood what I meant. And, yeah, why? You know, why? How did really it end cool. up there? I don't know. Well, there's a lady there in town who I met. Her name is Brenda. She owns the place, and she's got several other buildings that she's rehabbed and fixed up in town too, like a theater and stuff like that. So I think she's just trying to kind of put some money back into the community kind of thing, but okay. yeah, it's really cool. So if anybody gets down that way, it's, it's definitely worth dropping in. It really is. So that's awesome. Anyway, so then after that, I did a, you know, river road tour and the St. Louis exorcism again. So, but it was, you know, it was fun. It's fun weekend. So I had a, yeah, I had a Charlie Baracus, um, you know, did some music for the friend of the podcast. He, his mom reached out to me um, a while back. She said, I was at the Glen Carbon History Museum and the curator was talking about wanting to establish a Glen Carbon ghost tour, but couldn't find any interesting ghosts. Do you know if there's any stories in Glen Carbon? Uh, boy, not that I know of, um, but I mean, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are that, you know, the person to ask on that probably would be Luke Daliborski. Uh-huh. You okay. Know, Luke might know it's a little closer, even Lynn. What they might be Lynn Adams might know something too. Uh, I mean, both of them are tour guides for Alton, but they live a little closer to Glen Carbon. Okay, so, I'll hit them up. In Belleville, so he may they may have some more information than I would on that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm uh, sure there probably are. Every town's got them. Uh, I just haven't heard them. Okay. And you have something new coming out in November. I do. I do. Well. I also wanted to say that, you know, as we're getting closer to Halloween, and if you guys do want to celebrate with this the spooky season, too bad. Yeah, too <laughs> little, too late. late. Uh, everything really is filled up. But we do still have some stuff coming up, like you said, in November. And, of course, don't forget Dead of Winter in February. Um, and in November, um, we've got, you know, a couple of things still left. But really, I'm starting to focus on December now, which I know seems crazy because we're in the middle of August. But... Um, that's kind of our the first two weeks of uh, December is kind of our spirits of Christmas time. I've got two River Road tours, uh, a St. Louis exorcism night, and then the spirits of Christmas night. And the fun thing about tying that in, as you mentioned, in November, on November 18, um, I've had people bugging me about this for a, quite a while. Every year when I start posting things about, you know, trying to bring back ghost stories for Christmas. Everybody said, why don't you do a book on this? And I don't do it, haven't done it, but now finally I do have one coming out on the 
terror and tragedy of the holiday season, which is going to be called One Bleak Midwinter's Night. And oh, that's hell yeah. Out on the 18th. So it is uh, the dark side of the holiday season, uh, which I, you know, have been promoting for as long as I can remember, you know, doing stuff about dark stuff at Christmas. But so finally, I've got the book. I posted up the book cover the other day on my um, uh, Facebook page. Uh, but the book will be out on November 18th. We'll be doing a signing probably the second weekend in December in Alton at the Mineral Springs. So people want to pick it up in person, they can, but uh, it'll be coming out, uh, you know, in plenty of time before Christmas. So hopefully, you know, people will get excited about it. I, I am, I got to tell you, it was a, it was a fun book to write. It'll so, be a good, good stocking stuffer. For summer, so yes, it absolutely is a good stocking stuffer. I say the, uh, the best yeah, stock. excited about all the holidays, you know, because um, I mean, you know, as we always keep telling people, we do this all year round. You know, it's just Halloween is, you know, the, the busy, busy season. But, you know, shoot, I stay busy all the time. <laughs> yeah. and I'm getting ready to post our winter events up. So it's everything is coming soon. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Halloween is when the normal people think about spooky stuff. Right, and not, right. um, it's like Eve and alcoholics, you know. Yes, it is. It, it's kind of like amateur night New Year's Eve is uh, for the rest of us. We, you know, we do it all year year round it's not just halloween or you know every time somebody always brings up to me that like, oh it's world paranormal day or it's world ghost hunting day i'm like we do this all year round every so day 365 day. you know it's every day so yeah but anyway so uh, yeah it's cool it's cool cool so lots so of fun the, things you say the ultimate stop the ultimate stocking stuffer is a severed foot um yeah is that, is is your book is this book um is this like all true crime stuff are you gonna talk about krampus and it's stuff or a, like it's a mixture the first the first part of it the first section is like the the dark side of the holiday season and it's you know kind of the the grim traditions the legends the monsters that people do and then the second chapter or the second section is um is a tragedy of the holiday season and that is murders and true crime and the ghost stories that go along with them and then the final chat section is disasters and all the you know at the holiday season and all the things that go along with that you know the mind disasters the theater fires the you know all that kind of stuff so yeah it's i mean i ha you hate to say it was a really fun book to write but it was <laughs> so, yeah. i love it i the love it yeah. Death of her, you know yeah we're weirdos <laughs> everybody gets that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's let's dive into a a listener review here. Sure. This one is from Sep five eighty eight. Guessing it's probably a birthday, um, anniversary. <laughs> who knows? It's titled yeah. "One of the Best Podcasts Out There." It says can't remember exactly how I came across this Who's podcast. This what podcast is it? What um, podcast? Is it? I I think they're. I think it was Astonishing Legends. They were listening to oh, maybe. Okay. So it's, it's oh, okay. Great. Okay. Just yeah. Second. I wasn't sure. <laughs> podcast so can't remember I exactly how i came podcast. came across this podcast about two years ago but from episode one i was hooked and then in parentheses the sound quality isn't that bad guys give yourself some credit oh, i especially uh, i especially enjoyed learning about the history of the limp family um so thanks yeah and i i, yeah, I love thanks. when people yeah, say stuff cool. like that you know yeah. about the well, you know and I, I will say thank you to everyone who listens who's been telling me that they listen when they've been coming to events this fall because oh, okay. I've met a lot of people I hadn't met before who, you know, I had a, a couple on the uh, River Road tour the other night, stayed after and talked to me for a while. And uh, they, you know, one of the first things the guy said was, man, we love the podcast. So Aww. it's been great. 
hear from people who love the podcast. Um, and I mean, because it is a lot of fun for us. I mean, and that's, that's, we always say we wouldn't do it. And we, we probably, well, we wouldn't if no one listened, what would be the point? But, um, you know, the fact that people do listen and tell us about it, we really do appreciate it. So it does make it fun. No, absolutely. Um, and I, I think I've, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast or uh, just to you, but like I had people um, when my father passed away, I even put, I put up a, yeah. uh, a post and um, people, you know, giving condolences and all that. But I had multiple comments on there of people, um, you know, giving me their condolences, but saying, you don't know me. I just know you from the podcast. And sure. that was, that meant a lot. Um, yeah, and I sure. got, I got a, a, I think it was a Facebook message maybe yesterday from uh, Scott uh, and Hannah. I don't know if it's Robble, uh, how, how you Robel. pronounce it? Yes. Robble. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they were, yeah. they were carving pumpkins and doing their whole family thing. Yeah. And he zoomed in and they were listening to our podcast while yeah. they were carving yeah. pumpkins. Yeah, I, I, I got it too. Oh, awesome. Too. Yeah. And I was like, those, dude, those, that's those great. Yeah, I don't, really and great. I, but, I don't think, uh, I don't think. I like it when people buy a book or they say, oh, I'm reading this right now. And as I read the book, all I do is hear it in your voice. Oh, I yeah. get that a lot because of the podcast. You know, people will go, yeah, I, I'll, I, when I read, I read the book, it's, it's just like, I just hear it in your voice that you're reading it to me. So I don't, that's good or bad, depending on the situation, <laughs> but you know, it can't be too bad. It's like, I can't, <laughs> Troy, I just wanted to be able to read this in any I, I other know, voice. I just want to get away from you. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I, I, I guess I really can't express how much those little things like that can make my day and and stuff. Absolutely. So thank you so much for sending that kind of stuff. Um, on that happy note, you want to talk about some murders? Sure. Yeah, let's let's dig into this thing. So I'd always okay. I've always heard about. I've heard the title of this before. I've heard about Starved Rock so much, but I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. Um, you've talked about it a lot, yeah. but I've I'd yeah. heard the the name before. Um, so March 14th, 1960, the bodies of three women are found in St. Louis Canyon and Starved Rock State Park near Utica, Illinois. Uh, these three murders left behind a haunting. A man who confessed later changes his story, spends 60 years trying to get out of prison uh, because our legal system is basically not perfect. Uh, what do you what do you think happened here? Well, that's I mean, I, I try to. I, I tried to jump into a boy. I didn't want to put in too many of my own, you know, theories on this thing. I mean, I did mention some of it and I did mention mm -hmm. that I'm not convinced he's not guilty. I, I'm still not convinced. Uh, I don't care, um, you know, what they say about, you know, um, oh, it could have been anybody. I don't think so. Um, I, you know, he confessed and I know that people do confess. I get it. I totally do understand that. But his story has changed so many times that it's hard to keep track of how many times he's changed it and come up with new things. You know, wait till somebody dies and then claims they threatened him with a gun or, you know, beat him in the groin with billy clubs, you know, when they're not around to defend themselves anymore. Mm -hmm. And that had never been said at the time of his trial. That was something that came up later. And then they want to tell you that he's cleared because of this DNA. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Just because, I mean, that's like, you can't, you can't prove a negative just because right. the hair match him. They already had said that the, the, all the evidence had been contaminated, you know, that it had been, you know, all mixed together. And there'd been all these people that had handled it. So one stray hair after it sat in a filing cabinet for 40 years, doesn't impress me. You know, they just rule him out in other words. 
you and know, it, the twine he had, you know, it had, back in the kitchen, yes. you know, the twine that he, he used, the fact that he reenacted the crime scene, you know, the fact that he knew about the airplane that went over before the cops did. You know, I mean, there's just too many things. Besides that, I, I've known a lot of people from up in that area over the years, and they all tell you what a weirdo he was. So people who knew him, who actually knew him, a friend of mine's dad actually knew him and worked with him and talked about what a weirdo he was. Plus, you've got that other rape and murder that took place in Matthias in State Park. Well, she wasn't a murder. It was a robbery and a rape. And she identified him. They leave that out. They never talk about that when they keep talking about how innocent he is. And, and there's also the, you know, the statutory rape charge from when he was a kid. You know, no, everybody leaves that out, you know, when they're talking about him being innocent. So that's my opinion. I mean, that's for what it's worth. Um, but, I, you know, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm looking at, at all the, you know, all the flaws, you mm-hmm. know, and, and yeah, I know it's a different time. You could beat the shit out of somebody to get a confession out of him if you wanted to, because it was allowed at the time. You know, the fact that they want to talk about how he was misled. Well, I talk about that in, in, in the story. Of course, he was misled. That's what the police do. They're trying to get him to talk. So they can lie. That's been ruled. They can lie to suspects. Yep. So even if they lied to him and, you know, did or didn't, whatever. I mean, they told him, oh, you're going to go to the chair if you don't confess. That is literally every murder interrogation from the history of man has probably been that. You're going to hang. You're going to the gas chamber. You're going to the electric chair, you know, if you don't confess in a lethal injection. So that's not grounds for, well, as the as the courts all ruled, none of those things were grounds for an appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, he tried to fight this thing all the way to the Supreme Court. They didn't even want to listen to him. Everybody turned down his appeals. It wasn't until he was finally released on parole that somebody said, oh, well, we're going to prove you innocent. Well, I don't think you've proven anything. You can keep trying all you want, but I don't know. I, I just don't buy it. I'm sorry. I don't. You know, it's it's just I, I never have and I still don't. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's me. I mean, a mm-hmm. jury found him guilty. So as far as I'm concerned, he's guilty and was convicted of murder. Now, yeah. someday something comes along that proves me wrong. I'll be the first person to admit it. I know you will. Yeah, I. That's why. Uh, hell, that that that's why I don't talk to cops. Uh, they can hit me with a phone book all they want. Oh, in Chicago. I, I, that's what I said, and I even said that in the in the story too. You know, just don't talk. Ask for a lawyer. He never asked for a lawyer. He didn't even ask for a lawyer. So yeah. I mean, you know, you can't then turn around and go, "Oh well, I didn't mean it." Okay, well, that's why you should not talk, and mm-hmm. you should get a lawyer. Uh, yeah, anyway. and I think it, I think this one's tough too because. You know, the twine's the biggest thing for me, and then the airplane and um, him knowing some details about things. But the I think the hard part is, even though I'm kind of upsiding with you a little bit here where I think he probably did do it, but uh, he was, uh, you know, sleep deprived and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed because sure. that's what oh, they absolutely. do. And like, that's oh, how yeah. you get, that's how you that's get true. false confessions and things. So it's like, is this what happened or did he happen to be guilty? And they pushed and pushed and pushed, and he just yeah, finally well, admitted it. I always thought he was guilty, but I've always also thought that he probably wasn't alone. Um, oh, right. He was not a popular guy, but I've always kind of wondered if, you know, people say, oh, there's no way he could have subdued those women. He could have. One yeah. guy could have. He was crazy enough. You can subdue anybody. And these are middle-aged ladies from a rich suburb who probably had never had any any contact with any kind of crime or criminals or probably physical confrontations 
yeah, confrontations or anyone out of their uh, price range, so to speak, you know, uh-huh. with, the, with the poor people, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, and this isn't a judgment on them. I'm just saying it's not in their realm of experience. So I think he probably could have subdued him, but maybe not. There may have been someone else involved. I think that's a possibility. Not saying that I absolutely believe it, but I think it's possible. So, okay, Mildred, the the victims, Mildred Lindquist, Lillian Edding, Francis Murphy. The first signs of trouble are when uh, George Edding couldn't get a hold of his wife. And I I was thinking about this and, you know, it's. It sucks now when somebody won't text you back, you know, uh, you know, sure, hey, text sure. us when you get home, you know, when you're leaving the bar yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like, yeah. I know too well those like miserable rolling around in bed. Are they OK? Kind of feelings. And this right. went on for a while. And then somebody's yeah, like, oh, no, they're they're yeah. here. But they, yeah. yeah, they were we saw them at breakfast. They're fine, which is right. totally wrong. So I just imagine the panic, the tight chest, the knot in this man's stomach. Well, yeah, and this poor guy had had, been, had suffered a heart attack, and that's why he was why she'd been taking care of him mm-hmm. all winter because he had some heart issues. And so, imagine you know when you keep calling and keep calling and keep calling and no one answers the phone, you know, and then finally somebody says, "Oh yeah, they're around," and then they find out it's a mistake, you know that no, they haven't been fed; they've been missing for forty hours at this point, you know in a place that's really a, a really nice, peaceful area. It's not like we're talking about, you know, that they went off to the, you know, south side of Chicago to hang out for, you know, <laughs> for a week. You know, they went out to a, a place that was considered to be very safe in a safe area, small towns around there and a pretty area. They never expected any kind of trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder, um, would this have been easier to solve had it not had that winter storm, you know, like would there have been more evidence around? Yeah, I think there would have been footprints for one thing. I mean, that would have told them a lot if there had been footprints that would have, you know, we would have known if there was somebody else who was involved, you know, as it was, the snow covered everything. And then, you know, the crime scene people were trying to, you know, which was more advanced than most of the stories we talk about, but still, you know, they couldn't type the blood. There was no DNA or anything left. They couldn't type that. So, you know, they had to try to very carefully uncover all of the evidence underneath the snow, which was not easy to do. Right, right. And so, okay, so it's snowy ground like we talked about. I guess the guy got lucky, um, but it only takes 90 minutes for a group of boys to find their bloodied bodies. Uh, they're on their backs, two of them naked from the waist down, tied up, bludgeoned beyond recognition. Camera and binoculars are both bloody, bloody tree limb, most likely the murder weapon. Looks like they had been killed elsewhere and then drugged to the spot. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, I don't know, I can see t- uh, getting them naked from the waist down to try to make the crime seem different or out of this person's element no. or something and mislead no. people, throw so them weird. off. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess once you've killed somebody, it's like you've never been to Starved Rock, right? You've I have not. No. Okay. Well, St. Louis Canyon is probably the most popular spot in the park, uh, other than Starved Rock itself, which there isn't much to see because you climb to the top of the rock and you can't see the rock anymore because you're standing on it. Ah. So, St. Louis Canyon is probably the most popular place. It's close to the lodge. And it's kind of like the easy trail, you know, there's nothing hard about it. You leave the lodge, you can walk down some wooden steps, some, you know, some winding paths, and it takes you into this canyon. And so the canyon itself is sort of highlighted because it has this waterfall in it. 
And in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, it's always running. You know, the waterfall is always coming down, but it freezes solid in the wintertime. So it's kind of cool because it's like a gigantic icicle. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what they walked back to because that's what everyone wanted to see. But there really wasn't much traffic in the park because, well, for one thing, it's March and not a lot of people are hiking in the wintertime even now. But it was a good time for them to go. And then, of course, there's a snowstorm you know, predicted, even though weather wasn't, prediction wasn't as, you know, well, not that it's great now, but it was definitely worse in 1960. Sure. Um, so, but if, if you get a chance to walk into this canyon or look at some pictures of it, you can kind of visualize how they were trapped there. It's a dead end. Well, it turns out it's not because he knew a secret way out of it because that's what he told the police because he's a moron. But <laughs> um, but it's really a dead end for most people when you get to the back of this canyon and this overhang where he chugged the bodies is out of sight. Now, some people will describe it as a cave. It's not a cave. Um, it's just an overhang and mm -hmm. it goes back maybe 12 feet, something like that. But if you see some pictures of it, you can visualize what all this looked like. And I, I would... If anybody's listening to this and wants to do a little bit of homework, I would um, I'd suggest just Googling Starved Rock St. Louis Canyon and you'll find a lot of photographs and you'll be able to understand the layout here of this of this spot. But again, yeah, also yeah. easier to understand where he confronted them in this canyon and they felt that they had no way out. You know, they were trapped there. They tried to get away from him and couldn't. And I think that that will also make sense to people too, how one guy could have subdued three women. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see it. Um, and there is, uh, there's one way in, one way out. Yeah, uh, exactly. Not a lot you can do there. Something like this. <clears throat> so, so, okay. Rape wasn't a motive. Robbery. Well, I guess there were some Nothing things missing. Ro robbery probably wasn't a motive. So this is just... <laughs> I know we always talk about this and we are not crazy psychopathic murders and stuff. So it, it, it's kind of a moot point, but it's what's the right, point right. and purpose? Just violence, yeah. just evil crime of yeah, opportunity. I, I really think it started out as robbery. I really. Do okay. Do. And I think that robbery one gone of them wrong. struck him and he just sort of lost it. You know, when when one of them hit him and then he got him calmed down and told him that they just gave him the money, he'd leave him alone. And then I guess they had no intention of doing that and hit him again. At least that's what he says in his confession, the confession that he made like 15 times. That would right. be that. Well, so. if, if any women are listening, just go for the throat, go for the eyes, go for the testicles yeah. as hard as yeah, you can. I know. I know it. I know it. Uh, so the uh, the murders are a huge deal in the press, and it's hard to determine which agency is in charge of the investigation. I'm glad that we've cleared all that sort of stuff up. You know, 9-11 really fixed oh, a lot yeah, of right. it. Oh, um, yeah, it's still like that. You know it. So, yeah, that's it's still a huge mess. Um, and every time something like that happens, it always reminds me of, and since we're talking about like the same, almost the same exact time frame within a year or two of the Grimes sisters disappearing in Chicago. And you had even more uh, different authorities all wanting to, you know, take charge of the investigation and screwed everything up. And I think that that some of what happened here fell into the same category because you've got the county on one hand and the state police on the other and the governor wants the state police involved and they want evidence to go to one, you know, 
crime lab and you know the county wants it to go to another and that screwed everything up and you know um it's yeah it's too bad that stuff like that can't be figured out a little easier it's just it's just a so. dick measuring contest at that point oh, yeah, who wants to get credit for right. shit and mm-hmm. yeah yeah um what do you make of francis's finger been cut off you think it was make a defensive wound or something and no, just... no, that would be my guess maybe i don't know that that never really comes up and it doesn't come it never came up in the confession either so i don't know what that was about but i tend to kind of just not maybe dispute it but wonder if that's exactly right because look at all the other things they screwed up it makes mm. you wonder if it got accidentally cut off during the autopsy and then someone decided it was missing kind of like her rings were inside her glove right you know and i'm like man how do you miss all this but again it's 1960 might as well be 1860 in some ways you know because that's where forensics were at the time they weren't a hell of a lot better than they were you know years before but still yeah they'll find it in a filing cabinet in an envelope years and years Okay, so the the companies that the victims' husbands worked for uh, get together, offer a reward that's essentially today worth about three hundred thousand dollars. Tips flood in, and it's it's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because you get right. so a many, yeah, yeah, but you got to investigate every tip. Stuff, but you got to follow them up, right? Yes, exactly. there was a man that saw a car with a, a couple of guys talking to three women. Um, one of the guys got out; the other guy didn't. And this is this section is what I've called. Uh, I think I've used this joke before, but Harlan's big day out is what I call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because in April, the Illinois Crime Lab starts getting heat for bungling the investigation. You know, like things like you mentioned, they couldn't find Lillian's rings, which turned out to be in her glove, mess up hair samples. Um, and Harlan Warren, the prosecutor, is like, I'm okay, I'm gonna take this into my own hands, I'm gonna become the detective and start going with that and i and i i wonder i'm sure it's different back then than it is today but i just i wonder like how much power he had how much he was able to do how much he had to kind of do behind closed doors he's attorney so i mean he was in charge of uh, technically prosecuting all the cases in the county at the time but i mean normally you would use someone from your own office to investigate because the da does have its own investigators but for some reason he picked a couple of county cops uh, I don't know why. I guess they work off the books and not talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like he was doing anything that was sketchy. It was just, you know, kind of an investigation on the side. He was freelancing, really, because he really, I'm not sure, had the authority to be doing that. But on the other hand, I guess he kind of did. So I don't know. It's kind of a gray area there. You yeah. Know? And he ends up using, uh, you know, using that uh, polygraph test company that John Reed and associates and I didn't put all this into the into the story but um Reed John Reed perfected this type of in, interrogation using polygraph tests that was soon adopted by like every police department around the country but that's the reason why lie detector tests are not you know able to be used in court because they could be unreliable mostly mm-hmm. because this interrogation method is so heavy-handed that it tends to skew the results and that's who he was using and that's you know something else that people who are convinced that he's not guilty 
will say is that when they had a different tester, you know, everybody was, but of course on that other hand, somebody had to be involved, but according to the other polygraph examiner, nobody was involved. So, you know, it's unreliable no matter how you look at it, but you know, uh, but that's, that's what was going on there. But yeah, you're right. It was his kind of his big day out because he, he really, and then dug himself into a hole that he forgot to campaign for reelection. So, I know. And I feel like the fact that he did all this stuff, it's kind of like a, a gamble because if he gets a conviction, then they'd probably be like, OK, we're not mad that you did all this stuff. But if he failed, right. then they'd be like, we're going to oh, burn yeah. you. They were afraid him. Yeah, he, he knew if he didn't if he didn't catch somebody, he would be out for sure. Mm-hmm. But if he did catch somebody, it would look like grandstanding that he was just doing it to, you know, run a railroad some guy as guilty because he wanted to get reelected. So this was a lose lose for him no matter what. Right. And they ended up not even really nailing down the suspect until the election was over anyway. So at that point, it didn't even matter anymore. I've often wondered about these polygraph tests and the fact that they're not admissible in court and things like that. Um, I'm guessing they have to like figure this out, but they have to calibrate it for the fact that people are going to be nervous as shit in general, yeah, right? They probably do. Um, but there's so many ways to beat them just by throwing off your, you know, your whole system, your whole, you know, um, I've heard about people. Heard about people everything. putting thumbtacks in their shoe and yeah. like stepping yeah. on it to, and to putting their weight down on it to throw everything off. And, you know, you can drop a bunch of like, you know, um, like a ton and ton of caffeine and get yourself all hyped up beforehand. So you're at a weird baseline to start with. You know, mm. it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of tricks and stuff. And I think that's why it's become known for being so unreliable. But even then they, you know, they, like they said, they were using it to, it's kind of a place to kick off the investigation. Sure. Just to try to use it. But I think that most law enforcement people do put quite a bit of stock in it. You Have know? you ever and, gotten and to play around of, with any of them? No, no, I've never had one. I've never had one. I, I, I've never had a lie detector test. I so, feel like um, eventually this will uh for right or wrong i feel like it will evolve to where it's robots kind of like reading your pupil dilation your body language yeah but that's going to be just as unreliable the only way that it's ever going to really work is if someone can actually read someone's mind and since that's never going to happen i don't see how it's ever going to work out you don't think that's going to happen well, I don't. I doubt it. <laughs> it seems oh, we'll be dead before that. So, happens, but I mean, but... even yeah. But he, I mean, even robots. Then people will just say it's unreliable because it's robots. So I mean, it's there's always going to be an excuse. So right, right. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about the twine. Uh, the big thing, yeah, it had been taken from Lodge's kitchen at the park. So someone had access to that. Could have been a random stranger that came in, found twine, grabbed it. Most likely, someone. That was yeah. there often. So that's a big yeah. thing um, for me. Warren decides to run his own test again, like you talked about. Uh, Chester Weegers, now the main suspect. You know, the previous, uh, he passed six previous tests. Parents were poor, arrested on the statutory rape charge, like you said. At at 12 or 13, is that, that's when he was arrested for that? Yep. Damn. Uh, oh, good boy. And again, then he claimed he wasn't guilty. Um, but this happens all the time where people are a little too helpful um, with things, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's, I think, what got the suspicion up of some of the cops was that why, you know, this guy's a little too eager. It's like the guy who 
sets stuff on fire and then comes back to try to help put it out. Oh yeah. You arsonists know, are famous for that. You know, yeah, yeah. Or it's, you know, the guy who always wants to help out with the murders or send the cop the right direction wants to be, or like, um, remember in the, uh, Villisca thing, you've got the reverend who wanted to come back and be a detective, remember? Uh-huh. And was people out in the hotel lobbies, you know, it, yeah. and while he didn't do it, I don't think it's just a matter of, that always makes people look suspicious. You, you know, you know, you know what I like about what what I like about this sort of thing is um, you remember taking lives with Ethan Hawke and Angelina Jolie. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I, I love how they toss the uh, like murder photos to him when he's in interrogation. She's like, I just want to see what he wants to do because like a guilty person would want to see what we have on him, and he's like, not at all about it. And he's totally spoiler alert. He was totally guilty and shit, but he <laughs> played the system yeah. and, and was oh, was know. just great I at know. it. Yeah, that's a that's yeah. a great movie. Yeah, I know. Um, anyway, moving on. Yeah, cops are threatening the electric chair. Uh, he doesn't confess even after all the shit they put him through. Investigators uh, learned Chester had been. Uh, I hate to say this, he'd been fingered for a rape and robbery that took place a half mile away um, from Star Rock in 1959. Cops pick him up, interrogate the shit out of him. Finally, he asks to see his family. Then he gives the confession, said it was a robbery gone wrong. Two later, two days later, he recants his confession. And this is the trial in the aftermath. So um, it begins in February 1961 in downtown Ottawa. Why is it in Ottawa? County. It's county seat. Oh, oh, okay, okay. It's not Ottawa, okay. Canada. It's Ottawa, Illinois. Okay. That, well, that oh, I didn't. That's why I was like, what? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, see, Starred Rock is right outside of Utica, and then Ottawa is close by, and like LaSalle, Peru, all that stuff's in that same little Illinois River Valley. I should have known that, like, just because people bring cases to Madison County doesn't mean you can cross country lines to do that shit. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. I'm (laughs) so so sorry. No, no, no. I should have have gathered from context. I I, I honestly thought that everyone would understand that, but of course, you had to prove me wrong, so... I have no, I don't know any of these places you're talking about. The only thing I know about Utica is from the office and that's in Pennsylvania. Um, So this is an interesting um, tactic. They decide to only try him for one murder, basically in case they fuck it up, they can come back. That's pretty standard. They do that a lot. Um, And there have been. Why not? You get three strikes at the apple or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's happened many, in many, many cases. And there have been lots of times when, you know, they will find somebody not guilty of them. And so then they'll just haul them back in for the next person that died and try it over all over. I mean, why not? Uh, yeah, it's a smart move, really, because if if the jury had found him or if there'd been some reason why there'd been a mistrial or a technicality where they couldn't retry him for the same murder, well, then you just try him for the other woman. Instead. And you learn from that. And it's all exactly the same. Right. It's just a different person. So yeah, that's a that's a fairly standard, um, you know, uh, way of doing things, and I I actually think that it was smart. Yeah. Uh, even this, I had never tried a case, a, a murder case. The other guy was just out of law school, so I mean, they really got lucky on this whole thing. Well, yeah, so, I mean, you basically you can take one swing or you can take three swings. Like, yeah, why, yeah, exactly. why not? Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot and of sense. So deployment for three three trials at the same time, um, then you you know you're it's an all or nothing thing, and if it's nothing, then it's guys going to walk on murder. But you just try one, and something happens, you've got to you can try it again. Yeah, I want to give myself the best odds, and hell, if you win, then he's still put away for life, if not yeah, killed. Exactly. 
Exactly. Um, he says the DNA tests were a mess. And I love, I love, love, love that you took this shot at Governor Bogoyevich, uh, who wasn't de- uh, wasn't uh, buying it and didn't I mean, deny it a pardon. It's true. So, yeah, fuck him. You know, yeah, yeah. He did, uh, he's gonna go to jail himself for for not long after this. So yep, yep. And hey, for anybody that gets mad, he was found guilty of. So was. what yeah. do you want I us mean, to do? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm just, I'm just dating facts. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, a bunch of conspiracies are born. Uh, so George Spiro, son of the operator at Starved Rock, is a suspect. And he's found dead by suicide in his home. Do you think this is just a coincidence? Uh, yeah. Kind of. Okay. I've never seen what evidence anyone had against him. He just seemed to be like, oh, well, here's a guy that we can't clear right away because his alibi was shaky. Well, I mean, if that's all you've got, it seems hard to me to believe that he'd suddenly go, oh, my God, I'm going to prison and he killed himself. Yeah, that's that weak. seems to me there had to be more to that story but i don't know what it is i i would love to know so um and you know one of these days i'm probably gonna dig even deeper into this whole thing so that's fair my, enough that's my point yeah. yeah yeah it'll be one of your next books for whatever reason next time you get uh, bored um finally in up, man don't give away like stuff i've got coming up I don't, don't give away my projects. Troy, you don't tell me what you have coming up specifically for those <laughs> I know, reasons. <laughs> yeah, you're <Finally>, right. That's why <laughs> finally, you never know what the episodes are going to be. <laughs> that's that's the thing. This is the first season that I've had an outline. Like we talked about that. I know, but I I felt like you deserved one after five seasons of anything. Thank you. Know? you. So I'll, I'll be. I'll, you'll probably get one for season seven too. <laughs> you're, you already like, know what it's going to be about. I did. Hey, I did tell you what it was going to be about already. So you yeah, did. So I did that. So. And I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked. Uh, you're like, yeah, after you're like, after five years, the podcast is just better when Cody has a heads up. So I got to give him some of the information. Um, finally, in November 2019, Chester's granted parole in 2021. Like you said, tests show that the hairs found on the victims did not belong to Chester. But what does that mean? Like, it could have belonged to anybody. That's kind of my concern is I, I don't I don't think that that exonerated him. I think it did. Um, you know, I think it probably, you know, cast some reasonable doubt if they had found sure. that hair in 1960, then that would have been reasonable doubt at his trial. After all this time, you know, 60 years later, I don't know that considering the where everything was and how it was kept and all that. I don't know that it exonerates him. And so at at that point, um, with hairs, I'm guessing, or maybe maybe it didn't have the root or something, but was it kind of like blood where they couldn't really, really narrow it down a lot to rule people out or narrow things down? There was no, it was no one, it didn't match anyone in the system. Well, big deal. I mean, it could be check the Check the cops, check CSI. I mean, right, that's what I'm saying. I mean, but how would you? Because most of those guys are dead. I mean, that's been years. Mm. I mean, you're talking about 60 years. You're talking about guys who were probably in their 30s and 40s at the time. Oh, Most of them yeah. probably did. You can't go back and check every single one of them. It wasn't like people were giving DNA samples in 1960 to rule them out at crime scenes. because They weren't doing 23andMe and shit. Yeah, there was no need for it at the time. So, and so this... Yeah, they can't find a match for it. All well, or, or it didn't match Chester. And so that's all his attorneys are saying. Now, if it matched someone else, they're not going to say it because it, it's probably one of the cops or 
evidence guy tech or something. And there, you don't want that out there. All you want is that it's not. So, I mean, if I was the defense, like that, that's what I would lean on. I would just be like, it's not Chester. It's not Chester. It's not him. So they're, you know, crowing about how it exonerates them, but I, I just don't really think it does. Well, it, that's the thing. It's it's not it's not that I'm proving you innocent. I'm proving you not guilty. Right. Exactly. You know? Well, that's their job. You know, everybody. Yeah, that, that's their job. Get, you know, that is their job. Uh, but I just I don't think it exonerates them. So, of, of course, yes, I agree. Personal opinion. So. And, and I share your personal opinion. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, that's that's the way it is. Ghost stories. Starve Rock Lodge has been the source of many ghost stories. Only in room 109 where the women were supposed to stay. I, I love this kind of shit where the telephone rings this for no reason. This is the only one connected to this case. There are some other stories about the lodge. Um, I actually used really? to do, in fact, I did the very, I see that they do their own now, but I did their first ghost tours ever. Back in like 2005, mm-hmm. uh, I had a friend worked up there and I came up and did trolley tours around that area uh, and did ghost stories at the lodge uh, for years, for several years around that time. So did uh, other so people there are, die there or something? Yeah, well, there it's just got a long history. I mean, mm. they just had different stories, um, not not anything earth shattering. and anything. Well, I guess so the, the natives and stuff we talked about earlier, the line of yeah, and stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, there were always stories about you know, people seeing ghosts in the woods around Star Rock itself, you know, and that kind of thing. But as far as stories connected to this case, there are just the two. But both of them, especially this one, is creepy as hell. <laughs> you know, something the about telephone. a telephone. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know it. So it's 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 <laughs> it's, it's cliche, but I think it's hit on a lot because it's really spooky. You know, like. Yeah. It yeah, pick, yeah, picking up a phone and like, you know, no one's on the other end or like, is it is it worse if you hear nothing or is it worse if you hear like one word or something? I know, you know? I know. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that I, and again, we've had this discussion before about landline phones uh-huh. and how, you know, cell phones ruin every horror movie. But yeah, they also stories like this, because, you know, with a with a landline phone, you don't know who's calling. Mm-hmm. You don't know who the other end of it you know it's just like the you know the 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 babysitter the calls are coming from upstairs you know which you um, can't do so you can't do that hell, but you can't do that with a cell phone man i mean it just doesn't work well you know, i'm telling you, you but you also you can't call a house phone from the house phone yes you can yes you can no we you can't this it's a busy yes. signal what are you no, talking about you call from another line in the house you if okay listen. if there are two lines no, you can do it on the same line. I'm telling you, you can't because I've done it. You I've gotten busy signals. Troy, we need to put no, this to the Mythbusters. No. Well, you you can dial you dial a code and then you put the phone down and it will ring. Oh, and like a star sixty nine kind of weird it, thing. Yeah, like that. It's like a star sixty seven or something. And it the phone will ring and then you have to pick it up when someone else does. And then when they pick it up, then you can be on the other line. Or like you said, if there are two call two lines, you can definitely do it. But you can do it with the same line. I know, you know what? other people have argued with me about this, and you're not arguing. I re- I re- you know what? I recant. You would know more about this than I do, and I, yeah, I, I, tell, well, I believe I you. I tell you because my brother and I used to do it to my mom all the time. That's amazing, so, and I love like, it. We would make the phone ring, and then she'd pick it up, and then, you know, it's, you know, you know Bob's mortuary. You stab him, we slab him. You know, yes. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning yeah, today. But that's what makes it so creepy. Which yeah. is, you know, even the caller ID came along. It was not foolproof in the early days. Sure. That's, that was a spoiler, too. You know, when you had that, you could call up anybody on the phone. And, you know, and that was the era of prank calls. There's a movie that's out right now called Star 69. It's not great, but it was at least entertaining. Uh, but it's out right now, and it's a horror film and about people who got a prank call and then called the number back, and then bad things started happening because they called the number back. It's not a, like I said, it's not a classic, but it's not Ooh. bad for a movie. Is it? So. Is it like that Paul Walker uh, semi moop candy cane? Oh yeah, that's yeah. See, see, that's the kind of thing that you could do with prank calls. See, you could call up anybody and get them on the line, just like when. It, which shoot? What is that movie? Um, uh, Joyride. 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 And you, yeah, you, and he gets the guy on the phone and or on the CB and pretends to be a woman. Yeah, Candy Cane. Remember Candy Cane? It's Walker a great, it's a great movie. Sean and um, I can't remember who the girl is, but I can't yeah, either. I, I love that. That's a good one. That's Steve really Zahn is an underrated it. actor. I'll say it right now. Yeah, yeah. No, I like him. Well. Well, hey, okay. I appreciate you teaching me something I didn't know because I always, I always thought that was the fault in the movie because oh. the setup we had was like if you called your house phone, it would just it would just be a busy signal. No, but no, I, no. I believe you that there were other ways to get it done. Ring. You're not really calling, so that I mean that, that is a little weird. So it had to have been a double line in the movie, or it wouldn't have worked. But because all you can do is make it ring, you can't, you can't like dial the number. You just you can just make it ring and then you pick it up at the same time. But you oh, so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry to get back to the ghost stories. Oh, though. I know we went off on a thing there. And no, Troy, <laughs> Troy. This is the entire reason I made this podcast is for me to learn. I don't care about people listening. I want to learn. Um, only in room one hundred and nine, uh, where the women were supposed to stay, did this weird stuff happen. At, at, at this point. Telephone rings for no reasons. No one's there. But once someone claimed that a voice said Lillian. And yeah. so this is interesting because it's not someone that had been killed. It was someone who was involved in the traumatic history trying to yeah, get the through. Voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so but I mean, yeah, maybe it, maybe it wasn't a ghost calling. Maybe it was just some sort of echo or something. You know what I mean? I don't know. I like that. Yeah, um, I think it's but it's creepy as hell. Hell yeah. I mean, just that's that is that's some scary shit. No, no, <laughs> I would a, that, I would piss myself story, and throw the phone across the room. I heard it and I just I mean that would be see, I mean I, I have envisioned this thing like as a movie, uh -huh. you know, and you could turn this into a horror film and that's how this thing starts or something, man. You know, I don't know, it's creepy. So <laughs> well, it's like is a oh god, what's it They're like knocking on the door? Is uh is Amanda here or whatever? You know, we're talking oh, about strangers, yeah, yeah exactly, or whatever her name is, exactly. yeah, but it's just in person, yeah, Gosh. yeah, <laughs> wolf, as you said. All right, I want to give some shout outs <laughs> real quick to our okay. uh, latest subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show and helping us do what we do. Shout outs to Melissa, Cynthia, Alyssa, and Lindsay. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It it means oh, the world to us. It does. And next week, first episode. We're dropping it. Patreon series will drop next week. So oh, boy. We'll be ready to go. So I can't ready. wait. Yeah, so check I mean, that out. 
check it out. Uh, oh, let's save it for Halloween. Let's do it an oddball day and do it on. You want to do that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it'll be it'll be it'll be dropping on Halloween day. That morning will be the first episode of our new Patreon series. You so heard it here first. Will be in a completely different one, and you're just going to have to be surprised. But it's coming on Halloween day. All so, right, I I love it. You heard yeah, it here first. It's canon. Subscriber, you got to get signed up. So and you get signed up, you'll get to hear the new the new season and listen to the old season too. You got to check it out. And if you're one of the people that comments on the podcast where you love Troy's half and hate my half, then you should sign up for Patreon because it's only Troy. So you would you would love that. You would love that. Um, it is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. This one comes to us from Sarah, and we know Sarah. And the subject is a little note while listening it says I started listening to the podcast in chronological order recently. So I'm really behind and just on the new Orleans season, specifically on the death in new Orleans episode. I had to tell you that listening to the three of you try to talk sports truly made me chuckle out loud. I love the effort, but seriously, y'all are doing great. I absolutely love listening to the two of you and am and, and always will be in awe of Troy's knowledge on literally everything except maybe sports. Cody's yeah, questions are great and offer additional perspectives on the topic. Thank you both. Um, yeah, dude, dude, we're not we're not sportos. Um, I don't say I don't say sports ball uh, because I feel like I feel like it's kind of hack at this point. I'm over it. But but I listen. I I keep up with sports enough to continue conversation with some of my friends. But um, I love I love UFC. I love hockey. I loved organized consensual violence. That's what I say. And other than that, I'm kind of like, hey, like I get people like well, it, but I don't want to watch it. Back gladiators in the arena. I'll yes. Start watching. If if so, dude, if they had man fights a lion to the death, I would have season tickets. Like I would absolutely be there. And dude, I mean, I appreciate their athleticism and all that sort of stuff. But if I'm watching a baseball game on TV, I oh, want to blow my brains out. I just want to see the highlights. I don't mind the highlights. Yes, I, I love the highlights. I love like best you know goals do, of the season. Sports movies. I love sports movies. Just really? Like, sports. like, like, yeah. like uh, what do you like? Field of Dreams kind of yeah. thing. Remember the Titans? And I mean, shoot, I love Tim Cup and I hate, fucking hate golf. Um, golf is not, again, not really a sport unless you're carrying your own bag. Golf is you know, boring as um, shit. Any sport, any so called sport where you can stand and drink and smoke while you're playing is not a sport. That's some of the golf, places my friends get the most fucked up is while playing golf. Darts. These these things are not sports. They those are bar play. leagues. Why are those on sports channels? I do not understand, but that's just me. So I'm sure someone's gonna complain about it. Oh no. Well things. we're gonna we're gonna get hate for Bowling that. Bowling is a skill. It's not a sport. So we're well we're gonna get hate for that, but then I'm gonna toss it even the other way and say, you know what? Competitive cheerleading, that is a sport because it's very, very yeah, physical and requires yeah, choreography yeah. and talent and muscle movement. And so come at me. Yeah. No, I God, Troy, we're going to get so much shit for this. And you know what? I don't care. Probably not any, actually. So, I, uh, you know what? I don't, I don't foresee that we have tons and tons of like crazed sports fan listeners, but I could be wrong. So, well, but, and but Troy, people do love to complain other about than things. Cheryl. Stamp. Cheryl. Yeah. Die hard baseball 
personally. But yes, yeah, 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 because they're all yeah, they're always going to those games. I love her post about um, her Uber adventures too. I tell me too. <laughs> um, but anyway, hey, I don't, I don't care if you play a sport, don't do it, whatever. If you're doing something that makes yeah, you happy we, and doesn't hurt anybody, do your thing. Yeah, I don't care. Okay, Troy. I, um, I don't know if you know this. I like to complain about things. Anyway, n- okay, so no, we gotta wrap this. Up. That's yeah, all I got, yeah. man. So, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And we, um, we, we really appreciate all the, the comments, the questions, the reviews. We love it when you review us on iTunes. We love to get, um, I love to get orders from you where you use the podcast discount code. Just use the word podcast to get 10% off. Just go to AmericanHauntings.net and buy, 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 and always get that discount. It's like you're making money by listening. So Anyway, um, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Uh, as I mentioned already, the new uh, first episode of the new Patreon-only podcast season will be launched on October 31st. A uh, decision we made right here. You heard it here first. <laughs> are you are you going to drop the title early anywhere else? Maybe in the Patreon, like yeah, Facebook group or something? Will. Well, I'll let you know. But then I'll probably post it up on Facebook that we're gonna that it's gonna be starting on the 31st. Okay. I will be putting it up. So hell yeah. That's it. I'm done. So it's up to you. You can wrap things up and uh, we'll we'll put this baby to bed. So perfect. Yeah, I'm gonna let Troy get out of this Zoom call. But this episode of the American Hauntings podcast (laughs) was written (laughs) by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. It's gonna be edited tomorrow after work. Music for this season is performed (laughs) by Packy Lundholm, who has some hilarious um, Facebook and text message um, exchanges. You should check them out. You can find more about his music and shenanigans and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud and facebook you can find us in most of those places too plus you can subscribe to the show on itunes my spotify stitcher what's that get my new album on soundcloud oh yeah no troy's oh. got like a, a trap uh-huh. beat kind of thing uh, it's yeah. very oh. troy goes to all these raves where you wear headphones so they're like silent raves at 5 a.m in brooklyn um, uh-huh Find us everywhere and or anywhere you listen to podcasts. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about show notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. Who knows what we would be doing without you uh, right now? Yeah. We don't know. We don't care. People are we're listening. and listen. Yeah, we're, I'm glad you listened. And yeah. I, like I said earlier, I love when people send us random messages. It's like, hey, I like this thing you're doing. Thank you. Like That means the fucking yeah. world to, to yeah. us. It does. It does and thank you. Too. So until next time. Goodbye. See you later. Bye. So long. Bye. See you later. Boy. Well, that was good. Yeah, it worked out good. I'll have so. to put those two together, but I don't think there's any problem. Oh, I don't think there will be. Should be pretty standard. Um, anything else we need to talk about?